As you're able, let's remain standing as I read from the preaching passage today from the book of Esther, chapter 1. Esther is just two books before the book of Psalms. We'll be looking at verse 1 through 22. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the Garden of the King's Palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Inabagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mirs, Marcina, and Mucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mimucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the, king, the queen's behavior, will say the name to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus." And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. 
This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is God's word. Amen. Let's take our seats. Well, as we come now to God's Word, let's bow our heads in prayer together. And let's first of all be quiet and still our minds. Perhaps it's been a busy week. We're constantly bombarded with media. Let's regain our focus. Oh, Lord God, as we come now to your word, we uh, do pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, to give uh, attention and um, due honor to your word by that attention. We pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, to hear what it is that you want to say to us. Speak, Lord, for your servants here. We pray, Lord, that um, in hearing what it is you want to say to us, we would um, not only receive it ourselves, but Lord, uh, please help us then to pass on your word uh, to those who we influence, our family, friends, work colleagues. And we pray this all uh, for the glory of Jesus and in his name. Amen. Well, friends, we begin a new series in the book of Esther. Esther is a a book in the Bible that is rarely preached. Uh, It's not common in church circles to have a series in the book of Esther. It's reasonably uncommon to even have a series in the Old Testament. Um, But the book of Esther is an unusual book to preach from. And there are reasons for that. Uh, Partly it's um, for reasons of tradition. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer himself, uh, was a little bit suspicious about this book. He felt there was not much in it to encourage Christians. And uh, some of this is to do with what I suppose, I suppose is the most well-known aspect about the book of Esther, and that is that in the whole book, not once is the name of God even mentioned. That's an extraordinary thing for a book in the Bible. Uh, So extraordinary, isn't it, that um, in some rabbinic Hebrew texts, uh, the Hebrew of of the Old Testament and some Jewish uh, rabbinic Hebrew texts, in order to 
deal with this extraordinary fact that the name of God is not even mentioned, they sort of highlight um, an acrostic, uh, the, the, the first letter of a series of words in the text that uh, together, the first letter of this series of words, spell out the name of God. Even though the name of God is not itself mentioned, you, you can find the letters from the name of God. Which strikes me as a bit of a reach. But, but why would God inspire a book in the Bible that doesn't mention his name? Part of the reason for that is this issue of living in exile. There are several books in the Old Testament that are written to teach God's people how to live in a context, a context that is always the context of Christians in this world, by the way, of exile. Um, there's Esther, as we're looking at in this series, but there's also Daniel. Uh, famously, uh, Jeremiah chapter 29 gives specific instructions to to God's people, how to live in exile. In exile, he says that we are to seek the welfare of the city, for in its welfare is our welfare. That was the instruction that God gave His people, and you find that applied in different ways. In these, uh, the book of Daniel, the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah, and the book of Esther. But Esther, unlike these other books, doesn't even mention the name of God. Why is that? I think that is because, and this is the case I'm going to be making throughout the sermon series as I set up the book for us this morning. I think that is because Esther, and it's a story, and that's why um, I, I wrestle with whether to have the whole first chapter read out. I mean, it's 22 verses. It's a long reading at the beginning of a sermon series, but... It's a story, and stories, when we study them, we study them in a different way to we study one of Paul's letters. We need to hear the story. And, and I think the book of Esther, which never mentions the name of God, is, is a story, and I think it's written in such a way to teach us, to show us in the story, that God is in charge even when he doesn't seem to be? Even when it feels like he's not? Even when his name is not even mentioned? Even if you're not allowed to say his name at school? Even if they took his name off the money, in God we trust is on the American money. Even then, God is still in charge. And it's written to show us that. There's one other part of this book of Esther that is important to get, as I set up the introduction before we get into this uh, the first chapter specifically this morning, which is this other part is, is very important to get, but it's, it's hard to see because there's a lot of um, uh, uh, ancient narrative 
technique in it that isn't immediately obvious to us. But part of my challenge is trying to bring it out for us, and I hope I'll succeed. We'll see. But the, but the other aspect of this, this book is that it's meant to be, I think. I think it's meant to be funny. It's meant to make you laugh. Uh, in a sort of gallows humor kind of way. <laughs> and, and there are other parts of the Bible that have that kind of um, feel to it and specific instruction. For instance, Psalm 126 says about God's people that our mouths were open wide with laughter. And Psalm 2 describes how when the nations rage and plot against God's rule, the one enthroned in heaven, he laughs. And the book of Esther is inviting us through its story to laugh along with God. It's ridiculous that anyone else could be in charge. And so uh, this first um, chapter sets it up. It's a feast. In fact, uh, the book of Esther is actually structured around a series of feasts. It's part of the sort of lightness and the levity of it and the joy of it and the laughter of it. And, and, and this is a feast. And the, and the first chapter is asking, who is in charge really? Who's in charge really? And it presents various options. Three. Uh, the first option is the most obvious, and that's the king. Surely the king is in charge. Really, isn't he? After all, he's very powerful. You, you see, verse uh, one, uh, he's got a huge empire. Uh, he rules over 127 provinces. Uh, from India all the way to Africa, to Ethiopia. This is the most powerful man on the face of the planet at the time. If anyone's in charge, surely he is. Um, uh, we're told that he's in Susa, which is the, uh, um, was the winter capital of the uh, Persian Empire. It was, um, it was where you went when it was cold elsewhere. It was too hot, really, for the summer, but you went there in the winter. It's a bit like going to Florida in the summer, in the winter. And they're in, um, they're in Susa. And you can still see this capital city um, if you go on Google Earth and type in Susa. You can see the ruins of it. It was huge. You can trace out the, uh, the garden and the outer courtyard, and the inner courtyard, and the throne room, and then to the side of the, the king's um, residence was the very large harem for all his wives and concubines with many different rooms for all the different ones that he had. This is a powerful man in every 
every possible sense of, of, of that word. And he's gathered this huge feast. He's gathered the officials and nobles. Probably, this is the reason why it goes on so long, the first one, the 180 days, is he's actually gathering all these nobles and officials to set up his invasion of Greece that was to come later, his attempted invasion of Greece. And so he brings them all together, and they, he, he's kind of getting them in the right frame of mind to go to war. And they're all gathered around him, this huge capital city with all the, uh, all the power around him. Uh, we've discovered, um, archaeologists have discovered uh, these um, uh, pillars that were 60, 36 of them they've discovered, 65 feet high with massive um, pictures of statues of bulls on either side. It's a huge place. Herodotus, one of the ancient uh, historians, describes how when this king was coming back uh, from Greece after his attempted invasion of Greece, and he was on his ship, the captain of the ship said to him the ship was in um, danger of of sinking because it was too heavily uh, loaded. And the story Herodotus tells is that the king, uh, with all the uh, people around him on the deck, repeated that the captain has said that the ship was in danger of sinking because it was too heavily loaded, looked at the people on the deck next to him, whereupon a couple of dozen of them immediately leapt off the deck of the ship into the sea and drowned. It's the kind of reputation this man had. Power over life and death at, at, a, at a word. Later, when the capital Susa finally was conquered by Alexander the Great, Plutarch, another ancient writer, um, tells us that when they took away all the wealth, all the money, all the gold, all the silver that was there in that capital city, it required 10,000 pairs of mules, so 20,000 mules, and 5,000 camels to take away all the money and all the gold and all the silver. It's a sort of Fort Knox. Hugely powerful, hugely wealthy. Surely he's in charge. But what's so funny, the book of Esther is telling us, is this man can't even get his wife to come to his own party? He's a figure of fun. It's ridiculous. We've seen a lot of symbols of power in recent days. We've been told about a transfer of power. Pictures of the White House and Air Force One and military bands. All hail the chief. There's been no transfer of power. This king is not in charge. 
No king is. No human king. No president is. Not one. It's ridiculous to think they are. They all put their pant legs on in the same way each morning. They're not on charge. Well, if it's not the king, maybe it's the queen. Uh, and that's, that's the next option that Esther presents. Uh, queen Vashti. The, the queen uh, in uh, uh, Persian elite aristocratic circles, and especially uh, the, the one of the wives, this is no doubt the sort of head wife of, uh, of, of the king of Persia, was actually a powerful woman. Uh, Herodotus also tells us in this attempted invasion of Greece that one of his queens actually led a naval campaign successfully against some of the other Greek ships. This is a powerful woman. It's a sort of... the, The queen reported to no one else other than she was meant to report to the king, but no one else could tell her what to do. She's a sort of Amazon queen, if you like. And, uh, well, uh, as we, uh, uh, sometimes they say, you know, maybe the king was the head, but really the queen was the neck that turned the head. After all, she, she said no to the king. Uh, by the way, the, the request that the king made to her almost certainly has a salacious insinuation to it that that when he says to her, come to my party wearing your crown, what he's saying is, come to my party wearing your crown and not much else. And she says no. And I say, good for her. I've got two daughters. If someone made that kind of request of them, I would hope they were strong enough to say no to. Good for her. We've seen a lot of that in the last few years too. Women have stood up in Hollywood and said no more. No more of this casting couch nonsense. No more. Good for them, I say. They stood up in business circles and said, no more, we will not be treated like this. Well done, I say. Even in corrupt religious circles, they stood up and said, no more, good for them. I have two daughters. I'd hope they'd be strong enough to refuse this kind of request too. Well, maybe that's what's really in charge these days, that kind of movement it's not the machismo king. Maybe it's the sort of feministic movement that really is in charge. But no, says Esther, not at all. Yes, she says no, but the result is she could never see the king again. So much for her power. Well, then we come to surely the most likely option of who's really in charge, and that's the bureaucrats. 
the wise men, verse 13. Uh, these uh, wise men are the individuals, uh, the, the Greeks, and therefore reflected in the New Testament called magi. They were viewed as so wise, so learned, so insightful in the ancient world that they were viewed as always, almost being magical, magi. And we know from ancient records that the, the aristocrats were trained very early on and, and uh, got ready and uh, all sorts of complicated ways of getting them in shape physically and mentally. And, and then in their early years, they served in the military and elite uh, military forces. And, and then they went up through that. And then when they got to about 50, they retired from the military and then entered the bureaucracy, the administration, and gradually rose to the top of that. Well, sh- surely they're in charge, the administrators. They're pulling the strings, right? The bureaucrats. The king's just a figurehead. He's a puppet. Behind that, there's all these administrators and all these powerful places in the, in the empire, and they're, they're pulling the strings. It's the deep state. Surely they're really in charge. Uh, But no, says Esther. (laughs) Again, it's funny. These, you know, the magi, the the wise men, and and they're so worried about what Queen Vashti has done that their advice to the king is to issue a global decree. I mean, talk about executive decrees. To issue a global decree that every woman must obey her husband. Me thinks they protesteth too much. Can you imagine what it was like when they got home that evening? Uh, dear, I heard that Queen Vashti stood up for herself. Well, yes, that's right, but we've issued a, an executive decree. <laughs> right! Imagine what the kitchen was like that evening. They don't even run their own household, let alone the empire. So who's really in charge? Uh, Later on, as we work through uh, the book of Esther, another option will gradually be introduced, uh, an option from which uh, the Purim, so this book of Esther in 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 the Old Testament Jewish religion sets up the Feast of Purim, and that comes from the word pure, which is P-U-R in English, which means lot or is related to luck. And the book of Esther is saying it's not luck either. It's not fate either. But that that will come later in the story. But if it's not the king and it's not the queen and it's not the bureaucrats, who is it? Who's in charge really? And in a brilliant move of communication, We think communication is about saying things. That's not communication. That's just talking. Communication is saying things in such a way that the other person hears the word in their own head. 
That's communication. And in a brilliant move of communication, the book of Esther shows us that, that, that there is a name that is not named, that is nameless in this book. In such a way that when we read it, we always hear that name in our own head. That at the name of every knee should bow. And every, every tongue under heaven and earth confess that is Lord. Nameless, but not powerless. It's funny. It's funny to think that anyone else could be in charge. And and he rules from a cross. What could seem more ridiculous? And yet the book of Esther is saying, who's laughing now? For as Paul puts it, at the cross, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing by the cross. Oh, he's in charge. And Esther, this book, is calling us to put aside our fears and anxieties and submit to him, to bow our knee before him. For he is in charge. Even when he doesn't seem to be. And laugh. Laugh at the idea that any of these human individuals or peoples really have any authority ultimately at all. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we do name you as Lord. We hear your name in our heads and minds and hearts. And we wish to put aside any idea that anyone else is really in charge other than you.
Lord, uh, by your Spirit, help us to bow our knee before you, to submit to you and your ways. Help us, Lord, to give our lives to you as our King and Lord. And help us, Lord, to trust you. As the book of Esther encourages us, encourages us to do. And even yes, to laugh along with Esther. That all that the, the, the idea that anyone else is really in charge other than you. We love you. We bow before you. In Jesus' name, amen.